Hello, and welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series will focus on exploring the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which occurs when bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites change over time and no longer respond to antibiotics and other medicines. In other words, they become superbugs. In this podcast, we will have discussions with patients, physicians, and scientists to find out what's causing antimicrobial resistance, how it affects the lives of ordinary people, and most importantly, what can we do to stop it? This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. I'm Dr. Marty Peterson, and I've spent 25 years focused on this topic, both as an educator and researcher. I will be your host for this series. Hello, everyone, and welcome, or welcome back, to Season 2 of Superbugs and You. If you haven't already listened to Season 1, make sure to go back and learn more about the important topics covered in that series, which include sepsis, multidrug-resistant gram-negative infections, and tuberculosis. However, there are many more drug-resistant infections and topics to cover in the world of antimicrobial resistance. And in this season, we will cover four more. We will, as always, focus on what you can do as a listener to help in the fight against antimicrobial resistance. So thank you for being engaged in this work with us. In this episode, we will focus on infections caused by methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or you might know it as MRSA. MRSA most often causes skin infections. In some cases, it causes pneumonia and other infections, and it is resistant to many common antibiotics. Non-intact skin, such as when there are abrasions or incisions, is often the site of a MRSA infection. Athletes, daycare, and school students, and those who have surgery or medical devices inserted in their body are at higher risk for MRSA infection. MRSA is usually spread in the community by contact with infected people, or things that are carrying the bacteria. Approximately 5% of patients in U.S. hospitals carry MRSA in their nose or on their skin. In this episode, we will examine the global prevalence of MRSA infections and discuss the impact of a MRSA diagnosis on patients and their family. We will also review the challenges in treatment of this infection and what research and innovation is needed to improve the available treatment options. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is uh, Vanessa Carter, and I am a patient advocate for antibiotic resistance. Vanessa, thank you for speaking with us. Uh, as a survivor of a methicillin-resistant staph aureus infection, let's start at the beginning of how how you became infected. Um, what what was the cause, the root cause, and then we'll we'll get into your journey. Sure. So um, in, in 2004, I was a, um, involved in a car accident. I was about 25 years old, and um, this happened in Johannesburg at the time. Um, and it was uh, very severe. We lost control on the road. Um, a driver overtook us. I was a passenger in the car at the time. And um, they overtook us in the wrong lane. We ended up 
going into a violent spin and the car smashed into a concrete wall. And um, so I had I had multiple injuries. I had my stomach, a, a lot of internal injuries there, and I fractured my pelvic bone. Um, but, you know, at the time of the accident, I was actually leaning down and I was trying to see a, a page on a magazine. And as the car spun, I... I locked into that position and my face basically hit into the dashboard. Um, it was a very old car, so there were no airbags and um, the radio kind of came out in a corner. It was, it was actually a golf. So, you know, it has a sort of corner casing. And um, so as my face hit hard into that, I basically obliterated most of the bones that were on the right side. Um, I lost the eye. Um, you know, in, in sort of basic terms, I broke my nose. Um, I smashed out the whole bone structure where the eye was. Um, I broke my jaw. Um, there were just there were just lacerations, you know, cuts all over my face. Um, and I had a massive brain injury, massive head injury. So um, so anyway, they, they, the ambulance eventually arrived and they spent about two hours resuscitating me. Um, on the side of the road, um, and eventually they, when I was stable, they took me through to the the most um, the closest hospital, which was the Charlotte McSeke Academic Hospital, was a public hospital, and um, I uh, I went through a lot of emergency surgeries, and that you know they did the best that they could. Of course, this was a public hospital in in Johannesburg, so resources were very limited. Um, until eventually um, I was discharged about a month and a half later. I had to kind of get myself walking again because of um, all the injuries. Um, I had to learn to drive again because I couldn't see. I, you know, I had to get over the whole head injury. I had massive headaches that just would go on um, for at least a year, um, you know, with all the bones uh, trying to knit together and, and um you know, like I say, trying to recover. Um, so, so I slowly got over this pain, and I slowly got over this, and trying, you know, trying to get my life back together. Um, one of the the biggest injury, even though the most life threatening injury was in my abdomen, um, my face was the most complicated. I couldn't. I had to cover it. I couldn't walk out because I didn't have an eye in place. I I looked like a you know, complete, um, I was completely disfigured on the right-hand side. Um, so I set out to try to figure out, and again, going back to I was very young, 25 years old, which type of doctors I needed. Um, and I needed a whole lot of super specialists. I needed a whole lot of different prosthetics that needed to be implanted. Um, and so, you know, it, it took me another year. I had eventually then started, had saved up enough money um, to get the first surgery done, and that was uh, an artificial implant. Um, actually, it was a second one because in Joburg Gen, Joburg Charlotte McSeeker, they'd done the first one. So this is my second artificial prosthetic, which was called a, a orbital floor performed by an ophthalmologist, opth uh, ophthalmologist ocularist, um, or ocular surgeon, and. Um, then um, the next one that I needed was about uh, a few years later 
um, which was uh, needed to rebuild the um, the cheek structure, which was called an alloplastic uh, implant, um, because the bones weren't quite repaired correctly at the time of the accident, and they were basically collapsing again. Um, so this was sort of now my sixth year and my fourth prosthetic implant. Um performed by a maxillofacial surgeon, so it was a different type of surgeon. Um, anyway, then uh, when he inserted this alloplastic implant, I start, my eyelids started drooping because the, the surgical incisions started to adhere to this plastic implant. And so I had to go see a plastic surgeon to release the adhesions from this implant because um, it was forming something called an ectropion which was exposing my lower eyelid to a, to potential infection. Um, so uh, we did basic adhesion release. And um, anyway, I, I got out of hospital. I went home. I went to the store one day, and I felt this moisture all over my on the right side of my face. And I got into my car, and I pulled down the rearview mirror because I don't know what was going on. And there was just pus seeping out of my face. And I just, I don't know what to do because I had never seen this before. I had had other prosthetics that were implanted, but I'd never seen this kind of reaction, you know, this pus seeping out. So obviously I panicked. And um, so I called my plastic surgeon's offices and I said, what do I do? And they said, well, come in because you potentially have an infection. And I was admitted, and they did an emergency, what they call a debridement surgery, and a, and a basic reconstructive surgery. I was, you know, discharged. Two weeks later, the infection would come back again, but it looked worse this time. Now, so at this time, sure. did they did they tell you what type of infection it was? Were you receiving antibiotics? Yes, yes, I was. So um, so what would happen was, you know, when they saw the infection, they would give me antibiotics because, of course, when you book for surgery, except for the first one, I was booked in immediately. But but these kind of like in and out of hospital surgeries went on for a, a period of about 11 months. And um, waiting for surgery appointments would take time. So I would be put onto a course of antibiotics to try and deal with the infection. And then, of course, when I was booked into surgery, another course of antibiotics because I was going for surgery. And, and so it wasn't just, on top of that, it wasn't just because uh, with my plastic surgeon, it was, you know, what would happen was there was kind of disagreements going on between the different specialists. So the maxillofacial surgeon, for example, that originally implanted this cheek implant would say, well, I don't think it's coming from this implant. But you know what? He has a 14-day course of amoxicillin. Go see the ENT surgeon because I think it's coming from your sinuses because those were completely destroyed in your accident and see what he has to say. And then I would go see an ENT surgeon and he would say, well, I don't know, go see the plastic surgeon because I kind of disagree, but here's another course of antibiotics, another 14 days of amoxicillin. Go see the plastic surgeon, see what he says. It'll give you a bit of time, then come back to me and tell me. So, you know, so this is kind of the, this was kind of the problem for me was I was just taking endless courses of pretty much the same antibiotic prescribed by different doctors managing my case and, you know, different procedures 
um, until eventually one of them, which was my plastic surgeon at the end, said, look, I know there's differing opinions, but we've got to take this implant out um, or otherwise this, this infection is never going to go away. So he kind of stood forward. He was like my saving grace as plastic surgeon. Did you know still after all of these doctors and courses of antibiotic treatment, did you know yet that it wasn't an MRSA infection? Well, so what happened with my plastic surgeon in the end, um, I was kind of going with what the other doctors were saying, especially the maxillofacial surgeon. Um, and uh, he he was actually scheduled to be in a different surgery. I was scheduled to be to go for an ENT surgery. And he was he was working in the same hospital as the ENT surgeon in a theater next door on the same day. And I remember I went to go have an appointment with him and he said, Vanessa, I know you're going for another ENT surgery. I'm there at that hospital on that day. I'm going to come into that theater room and if I see that that infection is still on the prosthetic, I'm going to take it out. And I took it with a pinch of salt because I said, you know what, I haven't signed any agreement <laughs> with him. I didn't really know what was going on. I just was listening to different doctors. I was so confused. Um, and, you know, that's exactly what happened. I mean, I was under anesthetic. I went for my, my second sinus drainage. I woke up, and I'll never forget it, the anti surgeon sitting at the end of the bed saying to me, um, the doctor had to take it out, and it was the right thing to do, and we don't know how long it's going to take to fix this, but we're going to do our best. And at that point, because I had lost so much tissue to this infection by then, and of course this prosthetic being taken out on top of it was like half my bone structure gone. So what was left of my face, I couldn't even put an artificial eye in anymore because it just the eyelid was kind of like, comp like right down to where the cheek was, kind of thing. It was just so badly damaged, and I and I knew. Um, the anti surgeon said to me, "He's now sent it off. He's now sent this prosthetic off for testing." So that was the first time I heard the word "test," you know. And um, and as I said, this was like eleven months of repetitive surgeries with different doctors down the line. And eleven months that of having this infection come and yeah. go with the okay. Yep, and getting worse, looking worse. So um, so uh, something inside of me rang alarm bells, and I said, you know. How could, why did this plastic surgeon take such a big risk on his shoulders? Because I could, I could sue him. You know, he's given him no informed consent to do this. Um, so I phoned the pathologist's offices and I asked for the um, for a copy of the test to be sent to me. And so when I got them, at the top on the right hand side said methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, and a list of the different drugs with the R's and the S's, resistance, you know, um, susceptible, that for the first time I'd ever seen something like this, that I went, okay, what is this? Um, and when I started Googling the, on the internet, up came antibiotic resistance, and it just, it hit home really hard because I suddenly realized that half the problem was because I was getting, I was overusing the antibiotics, you know. Um, so... Um, being prescribed from different angles, not managing it properly myself, because um, I mean, I, I as a because I would I didn't know any better. I would do something like I'd go see one of my doctors, my anti surgeon. He had prescribed me the antibiotics, 
five days down the line, I'd say, well, you know, this antibiotic isn't working anyway, so I might as well just stop it and go see the other doctor, the plastic surgeon or the ophthalmologist or the uh, ocularist or whoever, to ask them what they think. So I was just as guilty because I didn't I didn't know any better. I had no cooking clue that I was at risk um, of of, and I was putting myself at risk, um, you know, as well. So, uh, so yeah. So after you get the diagnosis that you have MRSA and you have some of this additional information, how did you seek appropriate treatment for the infection? Um, yeah, well, you know, I. I I thank my lucky stars for the internet because, um, you know, it was one of my biggest allies. Um, You know, besides besides asking a lot of questions, um, and, of course, going back to my plastic surgeon, he was also one of my biggest allies in my team, to, to ask him these 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 questions of what is MRSA, what do I need to do? Um, and so uh, he he prescribed me vancomycin, which is one of sort of the end-of-the-line antibiotics. Um, and I just spent day and night searching, trying to understand, going through medical journals, because, um, you know, back then that was kind of really the only information that I had available to me to try and learn about it. Um you know, back in 20, uh, it was around about 2011, 2010, 2011, um, which was like 10 years ago. Uh, and, um, and I, and I started, you know, realizing all the mistakes that I had made, for example, um, you know, infection control, sterilizing my counter at home when I was doing things like changing my iPad. Um, I wasn't doing it correctly. I was, I was, um, you know, I was maybe using like normal water and using a bit of, you know, basic domestic uh, household cleaner to, to clean my counter when I should have been using really proper sterile um, solutions for the type of infection that I had. And this wasn't being explained to me. Um, so um, anyway, but 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 one of the other things I realized as well was I couldn't afford to, to have too many more surgeries because um, – because I was being so exposed to these antibiotics. And um, and what they had told me at the time as well was that I needed to give it a year before they could they could try and even attempt to operate, um, to, to perform surgery again in the area because of the risks that I had with aggravating the infection back again. And, of course, there were still three prosthetics left. Mm. So... So, you know, if I aggravated the, the area and it got onto the other prosthetics, you know, or into my bloodstream, then it would have been a, you know, right. a huge problem. So um, so one of the things out of desperation, I, I remember sitting in my office chair, um, you know, I worked from home at the time, and, and, and I thought to myself, I need to take my medical history um, and I need to somehow – put this into a document like as simple as possible. And I'm, I'm just going to email as many of the best facial surgeons I could find in the world. It sounded like a very, very um, uh, <laughs> hectic plan, you know, but what else could I do? I, I mean, I face the doctors had lost hope then. Um, and in South Africa, we didn't really have, it was very difficult to try and access the best doctors, um, so I just I just thought, well, what have I got to lose? And so I did it. 
And um, there was one particular journal article I found written with different doctors. One was Dr. Edward J. Catterson, who was working at the face transplant team at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, and they had been performing life-changing surgeries, and this particular medical journal article was all about um, infection prevention uh, in terms of face transplant um, surgeries. So I, I mean, he was just the, the ideal doctor that I needed to speak to, um, to to get his advice to say, well, you know, how do I fix this in like one surgery? <laughs> you know, not mm-hmm. ten. Just one, so that I don't have to be exposed to another hundred antibiotics, and 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 you know, it's, I mean, I struck gold because what happened was um, I had written to about fifty doctors, but he, his secretary, emailed me and um, said, "Doctor Caddison has seen your email and he's willing to help you. He'll have a Skype call with you." And this was back in about twenty twelve. Um, are you interested? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and so he, he gave me advice. It was a 30-minute Skype call. He said, I see cases like yours all the time. Um, you need a zygomatic osteotomy at as little foreign object as possible. What that basically meant in lay terms was I needed to cut the bone um, on the on the arch, which is sort of on the side of your face. They called it the, the zygomatic arch realign the bone forward and then he said use titanium plates because there was a little bit more um, acceptable than some of these other plastic implants that they use your body your body uh, takes better to titanium than alloplastic let's put it that way um, and and that'll be your main surgery and then you're only going to need plastic surgery a little bit of touch-up after that and um, and with that call with that advice um, I went and I booked as many doctor's appointments as I could with, you know, the best doctors I could find in Johannesburg until one professor, I visited about five or ten of them, one professor mimicked his advice. And so I went with him and he was a world-renowned professor and we did this within one surgery. The infection did come back again um, and uh, we thought this time it was in the bone. But then we rotated antibiotics. Um, I don't know the list of antibiotics we went on to. I mean, for all I know, it could have been end of the line. I don't know. Um, and uh, But eventually, after three months, the infection started clearing. And finally, I went for plastic surgery, minor touch-up. And then I was not perfect, but I was able to, to just take these coverings on my face off to walk out and not... Um, receive all these comments about my face you know it was just um I, I reached a point where I felt acceptable to to face society without yeah covering everything up and being afraid of you know people saying how you know what what sort of disease do you have why is your face so red why is it so swollen you know whatever how, how long would this have been in time since the car accident um, the final surgery was in 2013, the beginning of 2013. I had the accident in 2004, so it was about nine years. So it's such a significant part of your life, um, and it had a, it's had a tremendous impact, um, not only on your health, but you then 
have learned to become an informed patient and educating people through your story. So I, I want to transition to this, this other side of you now that's this activist and patient advocate in the fight against antibiotic resistance. Just tell me a little bit about that. How you, how that, how did you decide to take those steps towards this? You know, I think, I think just going through the whole experience, um, I, you know, my background professionally was in marketing um, and I studied graphic design, I studied art and, um, you know, and so I was working with marketing and communications every day and uh, for, since 97. So it was, it was around, um, so it was quite a few years. I mean, it was like 16 years at the time when we finished the, the reconstruction that, I drew back on my marketing and I, and I remember sitting one day and thinking to myself, why, why wasn't this term antibiotic resistance not common knowledge to me? Why, why is it that we understand, uh, you know, things like uh, putting sunscreen on to avoid cancer, you know, why is that possible to do? But, but, me quitting my antibiotics during halfway through a course wasn't logical to me. It 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 because I I, I was absolutely oblivious and um, you know I, I'm not the type of patient that it wouldn't be difficult to explain to you know if if the time was taken I could I could I could understand and I I believe that I would have made the right choices not to quit my antibiotics halfway. Um, so why was this communication not taking place? Um, so 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 shortly afterwards, this really bothered me, and I and I, I started walking through hospitals, which I know sounds ridiculous, but I started looking around me, like wh- where are the posters? Where on the pharmaceutical packaging is the um, is the warning of of, mm-hmm. of you know the risks associated to taking antibiotics, especially if you don't finish your course or you um, or if you don't if you don't take them correctly. Um, and and this drove me to getting online, building the social media pages, uh, developing myself as a brand because I had that those skills to do that. Uh, but but I did it just I guess I just followed my heart with it because um, because again and also coming down to my doctors where where were the doctors when they were prescribing the antibiotics saying um, maybe we should do a test for this or you know. Um, Vanessa, this could be antibiotic resistance, and my the conversation leading to uh, what is antibiotic resistance? Those conversations never took place, and I, it bothered me. I've done this now for for eight years, and I will continue until I can have a conversation with my mother, my sister, my friends, my family, um, in 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 the same way that I have a conversation about why you need to put sunscreen on to avoid cancer. Well, why have you stopped your antibiotics halfway? Because you think they're not working anymore. Um, it should be logical. It should be common knowledge. Antimicrobial resistance should be common knowledge. Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew Morris. I'm an infectious diseases physician at Sina Health and University Health Network in Toronto. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, 
and I'm the medical director of the Sinai Health University Health Network Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. And I've been doing work related to antimicrobial stewardship, or as I like to say, using antibiotics wisely um, for many years, probably getting close to 20 years now. Um, and I've been involved in efforts, I guess, locally, regionally, uh, provincially, and nationally and internationally. So, Dr. Morris, before uh, we begin this discussion of the topic of uh, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, of which you are an expert in, um, just just for the listeners, what, what drew you to infectious diseases as a specialty? Uh, <laughs> it's actually a, a somewhat funny story, not a typical one. I went into medical school to be a psychiatrist, and uh, all my training, I was pretty determined to be a psychiatrist. I started a psychiatry residency, but very late in medical school, I um, was mentored by uh, a resident who ended up himself becoming an infectious diseases physician, Mitch Weinstein. And my uh, attending physician uh, was a physician by the name of Dr. Hiller Velland, um, who uh, you know, has won international teaching awards and was uh, a legend, certainly in Canada, of, of infectious diseases. And I think that coupled with, uh, you know, what I was seeing with uh, patients who had uh, um, untreatable HIV infection, as well as what I found to be the most fascinating cases throughout my training, really drew me to uh, infectious diseases, because I think we're probably the um, we're the detectives, I guess, uh, of all the detectives in medicine. I think infectious diseases physicians are the ultimate detectives. And I think the, the puzzle and, and the detective aspect of it was what really got me most interested. It's interesting because you even started your residency in psychiatry and made that change. Um, yeah. yeah, so... So the topic, as we're going to be discussing, is methicillin-resistant staph aureus, and it gets categorized into whether it's community-associated or hospital-associated uh, by epidemiologists. And just to, for the listeners to understand the difference and why it gets categorized that way and the different risk factors that are associated with it. Yeah, it, it's, it's really a, a historical distinction in many ways, and it's probably not um, as useful today um, as it was many years ago. Initially, certainly when I trained, Staph aureus was almost always, or methicillin-resistant Staph aureus was almost always um, acquired in the hospital. And there were two aspects to it. One was uh, we had very few antibiotics because it was resistant to most available antibiotics. And in some ways, it's still like that. And the other aspect of it was it wasn't tremendously virulent. Uh, Staph aureus in and of itself is a absolutely nasty bug. And, um, you know, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus uh, naturally, therefore, one would think would cause lots of problems. But the hospital-acquired strains that we were seeing uh, in the early to mid-90s um, really wasn't that problematic from a uh, a disease-causing uh, perspective. But then what happened later, later on in, in the 90s and certainly um, in, in uh, this century was uh, strains started to emerge, especially in 
um, marginalized or vulnerable populations and in crowded uh, conditions where we saw a different kind of staph aureus that was resistant to methicillin. It, um, it wasn't tremendously drug resistant, even though it was resistant to methicillin, it was susceptible to many, many other antibiotics that we had available to us, but it seemed to cause much worse disease. And people came in off the street with that. And it really changed our paradigm of how we had to start thinking about Staph aureus because um, people were coming in with drug-resistant Staph aureus that was also causing, um, you know, necrotizing pneumonias, severe sepsis. It was really quite a scary time, to be honest with you, early on when we didn't have a good grasp of it. And so I'd say early on, we had this real distinction. We had cases that were acquired in the community that were bad, but drug susceptible. And then we had the ones that were acquired in the hospital that weren't so bad, um, but very drug resistant. And over time, what's happened is there's been a, a fair amount of um, overlap or homogeneity. There are still things that, um, you know, characterize each of those. Uh, and, and there are certainly molecular ways of identifying uh, the difference between uh, the different strains. Um, but, uh, you know, from a clinical perspective, we don't make that distinction nearly as much as we used to. What in a diagnosis of MRSA and, and as in your role as an infectious diseases expert, what are some of the challenges that you see? Yeah, you know, um, there's been a few changes. I think for a while, the um, rise of MRSA was uh pretty uh, aggressive and exponential, especially community-acquired MRSA. And it's um, it changes, uh, 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 I guess, fits and spurts, so that there are times when uh, more a greater proportion of patients who come in with staph aureus infection have MRSA, and uh, at other times it's not nearly as much. In, in Toronto, where I practice, somewhere between 20 to 25% of Patients who come in with Staph aureus infections are methicillin-resistant Staph aureus infections. And that poses a particular challenge because most of the antibiotics we use for undifferentiated infections are, are beta-lactam antibiotics or penicillin-like antibiotics, where we would normally rely on them to not only cover other bacteria, but also um, Staph aureus. But because MRSA has become so relatively common, it has uh, affected how we empirically choose to treat patients. And so almost always patients are given uh, some kind of um, anti-MRSA therapy. Often vancomycin is the agent that's used. So I thought for our listeners, it would be interesting for them to know the, the complexity of the bacteria it, with acquiring the antibiotic resistance, but also having some of these other factors that increase its severity. Yeah, you know, Staph aureus remains a really, really nasty uh, organism, uh, regardless of its drug resistance, to be honest with you. So when patients have bloodstream infections due to Staph aureus, uh, their mortality rates can be, you know, upwards of around 20, 25%. It's um, a germ that... Uh, causes a bunch of problems. One is uh, it, it's pretty common. So it um, 
likes to hang out in people's nostrils and armpits and um, in their rectal area and uh, uh, in their groin. And so, first of all, a lot of people periodically are colonized with it or uh, Staph aureus makes itself home there. Uh, Often the patients unwittingly harbor it and it comes and goes for some people and other people it tends to hang out there much longer. And then it also has this ability to get in into the skin. So it, it's really has an opera, it's opportunistic in, in its ability to get through skin barriers and uh, take advantage when there's any kind of breaks in the skin. Sometimes those breaks in the skin are really innocuous, like a, a scratch, but at other times it could be from a, a surgical scar or a surgical incision site, or when people have intravenous lines, especially um, you know, semi-permanent uh, intravenous catheters. And so it makes itself a- available or has that ability to uh, get in, I guess, under someone's skin, so to speak. And then on top of that, it has this ability to, to latch onto surfaces. So that could be things like uh, prosthetic devices, whether it's uh, someone's artificial uh, joint, like a hip or a knee, or uh, implantable cardiac devices. So the, they could be electronic devices like pacemakers um, or, or you know, uh, permanent defibrillators, or they could be things like artificial heart valves. So Staph aureus, you know, it has this ability to latch on to so many things. And then it has additional ways of avoiding our immune system. It almost kind of wards off white blood cells. And then it has all these different toxins that it produces that can cause a lot of nastiness. And uh, some of those things uh, supercharge the immune system in in some way. So it really turns on the immune system at a higher rate than uh, most other germs. And then at other times, it it causes uh, tissue damage or uh, damage to uh, parts of our um, immune system. And MRSA, especially the community-acquired MRSA, Um, seems to have that in spades. And so there's all these things put together that make uh, the MRSA or Staph aureus in general, but especially the MRSA challenging. And then we add on that the um, issues of drug resistance. So any delays in therapy because of the drug resistance uh, makes it even more challenging and, and causes even more problems. I'm going to switch gears and we're going to talk also about you know, your role as an infectious diseases physician, but also your role as an antibiotic steward. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Your, your advocacy and educational efforts are in this area, but you're also an antimicrobial steward in, in, the, in the hospital health system. And in why you chose to get involved in that and what some of your roles are. Yeah, you know, I, I got involved in it really a long time ago. Uh, I was um, working at another hospital and uh, a lot of the patients I took care of were in intensive care units. And I had a, a young man, I've told this story often, to be honest with you, because it, it made such a profound impact on my life, who had a, a pseudomonas infection, uh, brain infection. And... Uh, by the time I saw him, after he'd had uh, several rounds of antibiotics, his pseudomonas was essentially resistant to every antibiotic that we had available. 
And, you know, I, I treated him with, at the time, a drug I, I barely had heard of, to be honest with you, other than in, in lectures in medical school called colistin, uh, which is more like a detergent than an antibiotic. Um, it's a kind of polymyxin. And, um, and this, you know, pretty young guy, uh, yeah, young father and husband uh, died uh, of this infection. And it was really at that time that I recognized that what he uh, succumbed to was just the natural process of uh, overuse of antibiotics and inability to have available antibiotics. And that really started my career. Uh, essentially that day I went to um, the head of the ICU at the time and I said, uh, Peter, uh, I'm wondering if you can help me out because we have a problem. And that really started my antimicrobial stewardship career. And, and I really haven't looked back. It's, uh, it's been an interesting journey, to be honest with you. Uh, at times, it's been challenging because of a bunch of things, including the fact that antibiotics are probably the most emotionally laden therapies that we have. And it is a, a very difficult to change prescribing behaviors because uh, physicians and patients alike are, are really attached to antibiotics, um, often when, when we don't really need to use them. And on top of that, um, I'd say healthcare systems, uh, hospital leaders, policymakers, government officials and payers, and I'm gonna say the pharmaceutical industry as well, all you know, probably don't pay enough attention to the fact that we have both a, a shortage of antimicrobials and um, a need to properly steward them. Hi, so I'm Joe Handelsman. I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Plant Pathology, and I also am director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery, which is uh, an exploratory interdisciplinary institute for research. Uh, before that, I was a science advisor to President Obama, and the topic that we're going to talk about today uh, turned out to be very high on the president's list of science issues. So I worked on antibiotic resistance quite a lot um, at the White House. For our listeners, tell us how you became interested in science in this topic. Well, I initially became interested in science generally when I first looked through a microscope. I was in seventh grade and I was just absolutely enthralled with paramecia, which are, um, you know, small protists uh, that swim around and stuff food into their mouths um, in what I thought was just a hilarious way. And so at about age 12, I was essentially glued to a microscope and I ne never wanted to give up uh, working on microscopes. So that kind of led me naturally to microbiology. Uh, my lab kind of stumbled across antibiotics when we first started looking for bacteria in soil that would suppress plant diseases. And we found one that was extremely effective. And it turned out that it produced a completely novel class of antibiotics. 
and is made by this very exotic and interesting um, mechanism. And so uh, we've been pursuing antibiotics ever since. But my interest was fueled in part by very personal reasons because just around the time that I first started uh, my research lab, my mother developed uh, a very unusual and rare um, immune disorder that led to multiple lung infections. Um, and she, she just kept getting bacterial infections and they would be treated by antibiotics and then become, the bacteria would become resistant to the antibiotics and then she would get another antibiotic. And for a long time, about 17 years, it worked um, just switching her from antibiotic to antibiotic. And then finally, she got multiple infections that were so resistant that um, they killed her. And so I lost my mother to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And it was there was this really sad irony that here I was in my lab discovering antibiotics, but none of them, of course, were advanced enough to help my mother, who was dying of um antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So I guess after that, there was, there was no, no possibility of um, moving away from antibiotic resistance and uh, discovering new antibiotics. So how long have you been focused on this? Is this been a focus of, in, of your research? About 30, 35 years, pretty much my, my whole um, career. It's, yeah. it's been a big part of what I do. And now you're in a leadership role in, the, in d- discovery and your focus is on antibiotics and you also mentor many, many students and many scientists on their path that have the same interest. So in addition to the research that you're doing, uh, we're also here to talk about an organization you founded, Tiny Earth, and our listeners would like to know, how did this idea originate? How did it come to you? Well, I had worked on um, pedagogy, the methods we use for teaching in uh, science or STEM for many years. And I found that uh, we were using some of the most ineffective methods, like lecturing is a terrible way to teach people. And it wasn't changing, even though I started uh, a program to train faculty across the country to teach, and that got replicated across the country. It just wasn't changing fast enough. And that combined with my interest in antibiotics and the way I had seen undergraduates just light up when they do research made me realize that that was the tool for interesting and and keeping the interest of undergraduates in science. And so what I wanted to do was move students into research settings early in their career. You know, usually science students will get a chance to do research after their sophomore year or even junior year. But by then we've lost a lot of our STEM majors because they find the lecture-based courses so boring, uh, to put it quite bluntly. We lose about 60% of the students that start in STEM end up in other fields. And so that says that we're not, we're doing something wrong, that people who come to college primed and ready to major in science end up being driven off. And there's evidence that research courses, uh, which are a way of teaching a lot of students at once to uh, do research, 
our way to keep students in college generally, to raise their grades generally, and also to keep them in uh, STEM. So I wanted to get uh, first year and maybe second year students across the country, across the world, involved in research. And I was pretty sure that there were a lot more antibiotics to be discovered in soil bacteria, which are the source of most of our antibiotics to date. And so I thought this course was just a natural that wherever the students were, they could dig up soil and take a sample, culture bacteria from that sample, and then test the bacteria for the ability to inhibit pathogens like uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus or uh, other pathogens. To keep the students safe, we actually use relatives of those pathogens because we don't want the students getting sick from these uh, pretty awful, and in some cases, not easily cured uh, infections. So we use very close relatives that are safe, and then if uh, an antibiotic looks interesting, we of course go and test it on the pathogen itself. So you, you started to get into this, um, how, so we talked about how it originated, and you started to also describe the research approach and process, and you call it, on the website, I know it's called student sourcing. Mm-hmm. So we set up a system uh, to train uh, instructors to teach this course. And the beauty of it, which I I didn't know this would happen, but it really pleased me, was that the training was sufficient that instructors across the field of biology end up teaching it. So it's not just microbiologists teaching it, which, of course, warms my heart because I'm a microbiologist and I want everybody to teach microbiology. So that um, was, was really exciting. And so we we developed this training and then we replicated it and increased its frequency so that we could train more and more instructors. So now we actually have about 700 um, trained instructors across the world. And it was quite a surprise to me that it was so popular among instructors from every kind of institution from countries across the world. So we're now in Uh, major universities, um, community colleges, uh, four-year liberal arts colleges, and we're in about 27 countries across the world. And so the instructors have just taken it and and really run with it and developed the curriculum even further than the initial um, curriculum uh, that we presented. They one of them developed an add-on course on chemistry, another one on uh, genetics and mutagenesis. Uh, so there's a lot that goes way beyond the initial course of antibiotic discovery. One of the things that we think we offer by doing something that has such immediate and potentially vast implications for human health is that we're providing the students with the reason that we do science. It's fascinating, it's stimulating, it satisfies the need for finding out about the biological world, which I personally think is just a a fundamental human need. Um, it, uh, It just satisfies every Uh, everything that a lab course should do, plus a whole lot more, because it's real research, it's authentic research, but then it has the possibility of actually saving people's lives. And being part of the network is part of what appeals to students. I had one of my students say, uh, the first year I taught it, he said, I really like the idea of being part of this network because if a student in Siberia discovers a great antibiotic, I'll feel like I was part of that. 
And so there was a real sense of sharing that we're all doing this and okay, I might not be the one who discovers the big drug, but if somebody does, I'll feel, mm -hmm. I'll feel a little ownership. Um, so that's been, I think, one of the most inspiring parts for students is that it's not just uh, an exercise for your mind and for your hands, but it also could have a, a massive impact uh, globally. Correct. And just to make sure people are aware of that, you, you launched the it's a worldwide antibiotic discovery initiative. So it is about research that could, in the end, have molecules to, that discover you end up discovering that could be developed and save people's lives. Do you have any examples? Yeah. Unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. We've discovered several compounds, but they're known compounds. So people had discovered them before, um, things like resorcinols and um, uh, aminoglycosides that are, that are known. So unfortunately, I can't tell you um, it's some great new drug that's going to come on the market in a few years. That, that would be a little bit quick. We just started the chemistry initiative about a year ago. And that was um, thanks to a, both a local company and also um, the state of Wisconsin funded uh, the, re the research of this chemist. So we really hadn't been able to do the part that would tell us whether there are new molecules there or not for the first eight years of the program. And so we finally now have the means to do that with a fabulous chemist, and he is cranking through as many isolates as he can to figure out which ones produce novel compounds. So we don't we don't have the answer yet, but we're sure hoping that this will be the year that we start uh, real discovery. So for student listeners that want to be involved, or they could be educators as well, and they want to learn more about Tiny Earth and become involved. How can they do that? Well, we have a website, Tiny Earth, all in small letters, no spaces or punctuation, dot WISC, W-I-S-C, dot E-D-U. And that will tell you a lot about the people who are doing Tiny Earth and leading the process and training instructors. It will tell you how to apply to become an instructor. And um, it tells you how to get the, the Tiny Earth book that will teach you how to go through the process of isolating antibiotic producing bacteria from soil. And then you're on your way as and part of the worldwide network for antibiotic discovery. That's right. This interview is also about the perspective of the researcher, which you are and have been for, for decades now. What, what do you think has been the most challenging part of being a researcher in science and now the discovery of antibiotics? Research is intrinsically exciting because there's always something new. You know, we're asking questions that nobody's asked before or nobody's answered before. And so whatever we find uh, is a contribution to general knowledge. And so that's just an intrinsically exciting part but one of the things that took me a long time to get used to is that most experiments don't work. And unfortunately, students who don't know that take every failed experiment as a referendum on their own skills and talents. And I think that's one of the reasons that many students leave science is that failure is built into science. And yet 
good students are petrified of failure and it's seen as such a terrible thing. So that took me a long time to understand because I did not come from a family of scientists and I didn't realize that it's okay for a science, uh, an experiment to fail or to get a result that you didn't expect. That, that's actually the most exciting thing. But young scientists aren't told that that's okay. If your hypothesis is wrong, well, we just learned something, right? And the obvious answer is not nature's answer. So that took me a long time to figure out. Now I figured it out and failure is not exactly uh, the same that it was, as it was, say, 30 years ago. But I like to tell young people that because um, I think the fear of failure is is really one of the reasons that people will leave um, science. One of the hard parts, I think, is when you have a great idea and you execute the experiments needed to test the idea or to bring something to fruition, and it just doesn't work for whatever reason. And Tiny Earth is a little bit of an example of that because I would love to be able to tell you about all the new antibiotics that we've discovered. But there are a lot of reasons that you don't get to the answer you were hoping for as quickly as you could. So one, of course, is funding. That if we had had a team of 10 chemists for the last eight years, I would bet we'd have a lot of antibiotics to tell you about. But we have not had that, um, that kind of support. Um, some of it is we may be wrong. Maybe there are no more antibiotics to discover in soil. I kind of doubt that because my, my own research lab discovered several new antibiotics and we weren't even looking for them. We just found them in the course of studying soil bacteria. So I think that's pretty unlikely. And there are a lot of scientific reasons why we think that's unlikely. But we don't know the frequency of the antibiotics, the new ones. And so it may take a lot more work to get the new ones than we had hoped. So Joe, as a, as a researcher discovering new antibiotics, it, it's difficult once you discover one to be able to bring them to the clinic and ultimately approved by the FDA and have it on the market to start saving lives. You talk a little bit about that process and, and why it's so challenging. Well, I was really surprised to find out that it takes usually at, at least 10 years to go from discovery to um, the market. That's a long time. And we haven't even discovered the drugs yet. So we can't expect, unless things change radically, we can't really expect uh, products that Tiny Earth discovers um, to be available before about a decade. And that's just the nature of the drug development process. So we would need to develop, find out what the compound structure is, and then do preliminary tests to find out how active it is, then test it in animals to see if it will kill the organisms causing an infection in mice or another animal system. If it passes that, then it would go on to several other safety tests because the first thing we have to make sure of is that a drug is safe before we use it. Uh, and then it would go to humans in phase one trials and then phase two trials and phase three. It's, it's a very long process. And at each stage, the methods and data 
to date are reviewed by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, so that they usually it's companies developing these drugs. Um, the company can, you know, be we can be assured that the company is following good protocols that provide both safety and evidence of efficacy before a drug goes on the market. So it's not it's not a quick immediate process. We don't discover a drug today and see it on the market tomorrow. It's it's a long ways off, but um, it's also a uh, something that takes a lot of screening of these soil organisms. You know, it's not, we're not going to find it in the first one that we dig up or even the hundredth one. It may take hundreds or thousands um, to find the ones that have the promising drugs. And that's why it's so exciting to have this network of students who are serving as a, a fabulous workforce of scientists across the world discovering these organisms. At the end of each interview, I asked each guest the same question. What actions can we all take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections? Yeah, I think I think one of the most important things, um, speaking from a patient perspective, um, when it comes to MRSA, you know, um, is to know, first of all, that this, this isn't a type of infection that is confined to hospital wards. So, uh, so as patients, number one is we need to practice good hand hygiene all the time. Um, you know, uh, not only in hospital but also in the community. Um, and then the second part is, uh, you know, with MRSA, going back to my own story, is you know, don't quit the course halfway. Don't demand antibiotics. I think that. Uh probably the most important things that we uh, can do for people is to, um, you know, pr maintain proper hygiene and health. So I think ensuring that uh, people, you know, maintain good hand hygiene, they avoid unnecessary antibiotics, and certainly in general, just keep themselves as healthy as possible, will probably go quite a far way to avoiding acquiring MRSA. One of the things that doctors often find is that when a patient is sick or a parent has a sick child, they put they can put a lot of pressure on the doctors. Say, I want a drug. I, I really want you to prescribe something so I get better. And if the doctor doesn't know whether it's bacterial or viral, they very often will prescribe antibiotics just in case it is caused by a bacterium. And that's not a great practice. And it's not a great practice to prescribe drugs just because a parent or a patient is pressuring you to do so. I totally understand the, the physician's response, but that's part of why we've developed so much resistance. You have been listening to Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the threat of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. This podcast is produced by Maya Peters, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. 
For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, sidrap.umn.edu slash ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at sidrap underscore ASP and at AM Resistance. Thank you for listening.